Hello and welcome to the Partnerships for Progress podcast, conversations to fuel innovation in higher education. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Brian Mitchell, former president of Bucknell University and Washington and Jefferson College and founding principal of Academic Innovators to discuss the urgency for academic leaders to adapt to the challenges facing higher education today. Listen in as we hear about the existential crisis facing American higher education, the necessary shift in engagement across institutions, and how collaboration and partnerships can play an important role in responding to these challenges. Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to hear about your experience and expertise working in the higher ed industry with such a tremendous career and such a wonderful perspective on what higher education institutions are facing today. I was hoping you could start by really describing the realities that the higher ed landscape is facing in the United States. Happy to do so. So let's start then with a history lesson. There are three points of inflection in American higher education. The first one was after the American Civil War, when 750,000 individuals, largely men, died. And that caused colleges and universities to change dramatically. For example, I was the president of Washington and Jefferson College. It became Washington and Jefferson College when the two merged in 1865. You began to see that across the country at the same time that the federal government stepped in with the public institution Morrill Land Grant Act. Later, about 20 or so years later, places like Johns Hopkins University would establish graduate programs based on the German model. And we began to see the sort of contours, the shapings of how American higher education would take hold at the end of that century and certainly throughout the 20th century. The second, second point of inflection was the period from the Great Depression to the end of the Second World War. As an example, few people know that the University of Chicago and Northwestern University were in the last stages of a merger discussion, eventually decided against it because of the crisis precipitated by the collapse of the American economy and the Great Depression. And that extends all the way to a seminal moment in American higher education, which is the passage of the GI Bill. With the GI Bill and the Korean and then particularly the Vietnam Wars, the notion of opening up higher education, largely through public, but also through increasingly private sector enrollment growth, was something that America uh, began to understand and accept. So the notion of raising your children so they could go to college was very much entrenched by the third quarter of the 20th century. The last point of inflection occurred in this century. And it was a combination of factors. It wasn't any one precipitating moment. To start, the economy itself had changed dramatically. There is a big debate now in this country about the difference between degree granting and certificate granting programs. And we begin to see that in terms of the emergence of ed tech platforms across the country. We also see a rapid rise in tuition. Colleges and universities have a number of fixed costs, particularly in land and labor. They have large campuses and about 59% or so of their budget immediately goes to compensation. They're labor intensive. What does that mean? That means that at places that I'm familiar with, and you would be too, the sticker price, which is different than the actual amount that students pay, but the sticker price for many of these colleges, tuition fee, room and board numbers now exceeds $80,000 a year. 
So we have the change in terms of how services, educational services are delivered. We then have a high sticker price. We have consumers beginning to vote with their feet. Over 50% of first-time, first-year freshmen now go to two-year institutions, lots of the public community colleges. That's half the market. In addition to that, we also have increasing regulatory environment, both at the state and federal level. And then we have the problem of endowments. There are 4,000-plus colleges and universities, as we know them in the United States. At the same time, there are only maybe 35 to 50 that have endowments that really move the needle. So as a result, when you hear all of these stories about the government beginning to tax endowments, that's fine if you're Harvard, Yale, or Stanford. But for most of these colleges and universities, the hard truth is endowments are nice if you have them. And most of them do not have, on a rolling 12-quarter average 5% drawdown, do not have the kind of resources beyond tuition, which means they're tuition dependent, that allows them to really make substantial changes or to base their agility on outside resources that are not tuition-based. So put all of those factors together, then fold in the Great Recession, from which we never really came out, at least in higher education, and then add to that COVID. And you begin to see that we have reached the third inflection point in American higher education. We talk about that in two books that we've put out by Johns Hopkins, How to Run a College and Leadership Matters. And we see it increasingly as a growing threat to the stability of a decentralized system of, of American higher education. It certainly sounds like a very intense moment in history for our institutional partners to navigate and one that obviously is going to take a very particular approach and a lot of tremendous leadership by our institutional board members and presidents and other academic leaders to to find the way through these times out into kind of the next iteration of of the, Mm -hmm. the U.S. higher ed model. So I'm curious what the typical reaction that you're witnessing in response to these challenges from board members, presidents, faculty. What are you seeing in the space? I'm going to tell you exactly what we think, and it's not necessarily what American higher education leadership would like to hear. On the basis of what you've described, let's break it up into faculty, senior administration, and board leadership, particularly the chair of the board of trustees. Let's start with faculty. I always joke with my faculty friends that one of the reasons that they liked higher education so much as a way to be employed is that they were able to turn their back on the business side of American capitalism because it is a very protected environment, not only in terms of how you would imagine it, but in fact, in the way it's structured. And so as a result, faculty are often unintentionally unaware of the seriousness of the crisis facing American higher education. Their job is to teach. And the assumption is that the board and the senior leadership can manage the business so they can continue to teach. That's a lovely moment, but it isn't reality anymore. Colleges and universities need to make the faculty as aware as possible, not to scare them, but to make sure that they understand what are the three or four or five key existential threats to their ability, that is the faculty's ability to continue to teach. Let's focus now on the higher education leadership. I spent a lot of years as a college and university president, and I worked for them before that in in terms of the 90 private colleges in Pennsylvania, in terms of various jobs I've held. And when I was at Bucknell or Washington and Jefferson or the Association of Independent Colleges, I have the greatest respect for college and university presidents. I think they have, except for the provost in their field, 
they have some of the most difficult jobs in the world. Somebody asked me what a president was, and, and I've always said, I mean, the president is someone who has a corporate title, acting like dispensing favors like a 19th century political ward boss, trying to manage a medieval craft guild. And if you understand what I'm saying, and I think it's easy to understand, then you begin to see that, in fact, the job is more mid-sized city mayor than it is corporate leader in most respects, particularly inside the college or university gates. What that means is that presidents are chief cheerleaders, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I can say that sometimes being the chief cheerleader is a real problem in terms of presenting factually the data that are necessary for institutions to thrive. I also can say that for a lot of college and university presidents, taking the position of being one of three things, a presider, change agent, or a strategist, and I favor the strategist. If you take a position as one of them, you become tagged as a change agent or tagged as a presider president or as a strategist. Each has their downfalls. And one of the things you have to be careful about and think through as a president is whether or not you want to fall on your sword, because that's an easy way to get unemployed. So you, on one hand, you have to be the chief cheerleader. And on the other hand, you have to make tough decisions. I think in some respects, the CFOs are the most pragmatic of all of them, of, of the senior leadership membership, because the CFOs are little gray, always black and white in terms of the way they see things and the numbers don't lie. Now let's move on to the board. I've been a trustee three times, and one of them was as the chair of the Board of Trustees of Merrimack College in Massachusetts. And I will say, although this doesn't apply to Merrimack, I will say that boards are often the weakest link in the chain being faculty, higher education leadership, and trustees. If you go to board meetings, it's often overwhelmingly alumni-based, and they want to hear news, sports, and weather. But the way they really want to hear it is they want to hear sports, weather, and news. They often hear report outs, report after report after report. They know that they need to do three things, which is to pass the budget, to oversee the general components on which the university is founded, and to hire, retain, nurture, support, and fire, and replace the president. That's all they do. But what they often don't do is they don't look at the four or five existential threats which they need to be looking at in the four times they meet a year. While I'm a sports guy and I love my time with the Patriot League and with the President's Athletic Conference and the other places where I've worked on the athletic side, spending time on sports or spending time on alumni work is not the responsibility of the board. My point is that taken together, there has to be a wholesale transformation in the way that faculty think about higher education, leadership begins to lead, and governance begins to be executed at the board level. The alternative is they will not be agile enough, and they will not be able to sustain the current way of doing things because, as we've talked about before, they lack the financial resources beyond tuition to do so. While there have been many inflection points throughout the history of higher education, today's academic leaders are facing a myriad of new complex challenges. Keep listening as we discuss the necessary shifts in engagement needed across higher education institutions in order to mitigate risk and maintain viability. 
what you are describing is a really fundamental cultural shift and, and change mindset in the environment. And so are there recommendations you have on how these groups come together to start to build a strategy to face these enormous challenges that we're describing? I think what I'd say is the first thing you have to do is to be aware of what crisis awaits you. That instead of worrying about whether or not there should be a long discussion about choose your internal argument that can rile up a campus or that needs to be discussed on a campus, and they should be discussed, it isn't necessarily the thing that should take the time up of a meeting of the Board of Trustees. Together, they all need to start by being fully transparent. There is nothing to hide here. So as a result, being fully transparent with the faculty and staff is important too. Faculty and staff is a good way for them to understand two things. First, that higher education is a competitive business. And second, that the leadership, particularly the higher education leadership, the president, CFO, and provost, and so on, is really trying to do their collective best to make certain that, in fact, the place is sustainable. You know, the argument is... Will colleges and universities in their current form be sustainable, or do we need to begin to develop a series of new kinds of partnerships and new ways of thinking? Your question deals with the thinking, and I believe that absent transparency and absent the ability to say directly, kindly, thoughtfully, intelligently, in a well-thought-out manner, what are the challenges facing a college or university, why the history department at Colgate is, in fact, different than the history department at Middlebury, or why, in fact, it's really a good idea that we have a large number of Pell Grant recipients because first-generation kids are who we serve in suburban Philadelphia, or translate that across the country. Those are important first steps to understanding the question. And I conclude by saying this. The answer to your question is you start at the beginning with what's the question, and then you answer it. Well, and you described previously the challenging position that a president is in, whether they decide to be a change agent or a presider or a strategist, and this concept of faculty being able to not necessarily have to worry so much about the business and think primarily about their teaching. So as institutional leaders start to transition their campus communities to recognizing that they do have to make decisions around sustainability, any advice on how to combat that resistance to a business? business mindset while also honoring the longstanding traditions. The first thing I do is I recognize that a great deal of the entrepreneurial spirit that exists resides with the faculty and staff. So you should not simply say we need to set up a college of nursing without having a conversation about internally about what are the things we can do building off if it's a liberal arts college, for example, the liberal arts tradition where we teach students how to write and how to speak and how to apply quantitative methods and use technology and work in a collaborative setting. How can we build off that basic foundation and the programs that we have in place to begin to be more relevant? Remember that colleges and universities are two things. They are centers of academic excellence and they are the economic engines of their region. Since we use Pennsylvania as an example, what would Western Pennsylvania or Eastern Ohio be like if dozens of colleges suddenly collapsed? There'd be very little there, and we have to understand the value that these colleges and universities bring. But for the faculty, they also have to understand that they're workforce engines, and they need not only to teach historians history, 
so they can reproduce themselves, but they need to find a way to make certain that what they teach is relevant to the workforce in the region that they surround or the catchment basin rather in terms of where their enrollment comes from. Who's sitting in the seat? Where do we want to go? For what reasons? So that becomes terribly important for us to understand. The second thing I think I'd say is that it's really important also for the leadership on the governance side, that is to say on the board side and on the senior leadership side, to recognize that they're not simply trying to produce the next Swarthmore. They're not a Stanford wannabe if you want to be a, a research university. They have to have a clear sense of mission and purpose. They have to have programs that are founded on that. And those programs must evolve in such a way that they begin to address their region and that they begin to address the historic foundation upon which they were built. Dr. Mitchell, you alluded to the fact that there's the, an inevitability to come to terms with the idea that the independent college model working in isolation, serving a particular region, may need to migrate more towards a collaborative partnership type of environment. And so can you provide some examples of partnership opportunities that could potentially help institutions as they figure out how to adapt to these changing conditions? Uh, first, that's a really good question. And so I, I'm going to divide it into two parts. The first thing I'd say is follow the money. If you are tuition fee room and board dependent, your margins are shrinking. And you have to recognize that, in fact, that you can only stay in place so long as you can pay the bills. Now, we'll use the private side here. At colleges and universities right now, the posted discount rate on average nationally is about 56%. But among the client base that we serve, there's a wide range. But within that range, a lot of name colleges and universities are now at 65 to 80%, which means that on the day in which you close, your grass will be cut and your dorms will be full, but nobody will be paying any tuition. It's reached that point of concern for a great many of these colleges and universities. Therefore, you need to follow the money and produce new revenue. Now, you can produce new revenue all sorts of ways. You can do it by cutting. And one of the things that I think is unfortunate is that many colleges and universities thinking they could get through the COVID period, for example, simply put across the board cuts in place. Now, what that does is it slashes excellence and it slashes mediocrity. And you shouldn't probably do that. What you need to do is you need to begin to take a look at programs and do a business analysis in terms of what works and what doesn't and where you can find revenue. Now, how can you find revenue? It's not necessarily closing down the philosophy department. There's only a couple of ways to create new revenue when you think about it. The first way maybe is to begin to look at your student base. Another partner that we have looks at international recruiting. And they can specify where, for which program, because it's a data analytics-based program, which is unique. Which vendors do you want to work with? What does, and then they follow very carefully, what is the freshman to sophomore, sophomore year retention rate? And then what is the four-year graduation rate? And the numbers are astounding. Those students are at the discount rate or lower and often full pay. And particularly at smaller institutions, the addition of an international student population, which adds great value on campus, can in fact produce revenue in traditional ways that is substantial. The other thing you look at is you look at various programs and strategies. And I'll just give a third example. We could go to dozens of examples in, in, in terms of our conversation today. The third example I'd, I'd take a look at is 
whether or not you can begin to create efficiencies, economies of scale, and generate new revenue by using online programming. Do you need to duplicate basic core foundation requirements that all students in your college or university must take in order to graduate at 120 or whatever the number of credits are that you graduate at? The answer is no. Can you do that more efficiently so that the college and university faculty can be free to teach rather upper division level courses that allow them to teach more what they want to teach, that allow them to be more innovative, and that allow colleges and universities have existing faculty on hand to begin to do more entrepreneurial stuff based on what we talked about before, which is the foundation built from a, in this case, in the example we gave earlier, a solid liberal arts core education. Can you use online programming to begin to both take efficiencies and economies of scale into place? And can you also use it to free up faculty and staff in such a way that they can begin to specialize and to differentiate the college or university and its academic programming. Those three examples alone can largely, depending upon the institution, reduce its deficit and give it both breathing space to think about what it wants to be when it grows up, that's where it will be in one, three, and five years, and also begin to provide that what, what you would call, if you were a politician, walking around money necessary to make new investments in a college or university that allows it to become more agile. I'll make one last point here. Despite what I say today, colleges and universities, some of which go back over 400 years, are tremendously adaptable places. And we believe that many of them will survive. The question is, will they be weaker? And the question is, are we going to lose more than we needed to because they didn't adapt quickly enough? What you describe as the ability to adapt and to continue to find ways to to think about the future and prepare the institution with investments that position them to transition and navigate all of these transition points. I can't help but think that the, the world today has a number of opportunities now that it's really evolved into a digital ecosystem where partnerships and accessing resources and sharing resources has only become easier to access, although probably more complicated to vet. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, And again, it goes back to being fully transparent with staff and faculty. Let's assume you, you went to an online provider to provide X. The faculty might say, we do that. How dare you do that? But if you explain to the faculty that it allows them to teach differently, more of what they think is useful, tied to more entrepreneurial programming that they want to teach, but that the school, the college, or university can't afford, then it becomes as much their idea, and they participate because they're the center of entrepreneurialism on campus, they participate more and more willingly than they would otherwise if it had been imposed from above. The danger I see, and I I say this as a long-term college president, is Don't tell them what they don't know and be careful if you do. Make sure it's a common understanding built from trust. Well, and I was going to ask you if you had a final piece of advice to academic leaders who are navigating these complicated times, but that really sounds, Dr. Mitchell, like a very important tip uh, Mm -hmm. to leave our audience with. Is there any other last thoughts you'd like to add? Well, the only thing I'd say is I'm a huge fan of the American higher education system. It's one of our last export products. If you think of it, one of the things that's unique about America is that we export education to the world. If you can get an American education anywhere in the world, you probably want to take it. 
So bear that in mind. It's unique and idiosyncratic to American life. We want to keep that. The second thing I would say is that we have a financial crisis. It's a follow the money problem for colleges and universities that they can solve if they choose. And the third point I'd say is while I am very optimistic about their future, they're running out of time and they need to think about leadership, how leadership is exercised and how quickly they can begin to reimagine the possible. Thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell, for helping to stress that important message uh, for all the advice you're sharing to our academic leaders. I, too, believe that there is so much opportunity for us to explore together across the industry in partnership and collaboration that we can solve these problems together. And the, the urgency is there and the time is right. Thank you again for sharing all of your wisdom with us today. Thank you for listening and a big thank you to Dr. Mitchell for his insight. Acadium is providing academic leaders access to a vast digital ecosystem, helping institutions evolve by optimizing and launching new academic programs, offering just-in-time course solutions, and creating new ways to attract workforce learners. We're here to help your institution meet the challenges facing higher education and to serve the modern day learner. Make sure to subscribe to the Partnerships for Progress podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you know when the next conversation is live.